At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of James. If you're not so familiar with the Bible, find Hebrews, go to the back, find Hebrews, and James is right after that, um, so it's near the end. Uh, today, we're beginning a series as we're going to take a look at the book of James over the next several weeks. And as we enter into this time and into this word together, I want us to, to look at the book of James Maybe through a different perspective. Maybe you've been a Bible student your whole life and you've studied the book of James several times. Or maybe James is brand new to you. As we come to this book today, I want us to see how God has designed this book to work in our lives. How it fits into scripture. And as we see that, I think a modern day example would be helpful. Have you ever heard the term, trust the process? Yeah, trust the process. It was a coined phrase that is new um, to the world, beginning back in 2013, I think it was. Um, it, the credit goes to that, that, that phrase, goes to the manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, Sam Hinkie. He was in the process of trying to rebuild the team, and he came with some like, weird ideas and some far-fetched ideas, and one of the things that he continued to say was, just trust the process. And it, for them, what they wanted to do is they wanted to forego short-term wins in order to experience long-term gains. And so in this process, if you follow that story at all, you know that they did some crazy things. The Philadelphia 76ers let go some of their stars. They allowed the team to tank so that they could get better draft picks. And they were doing all of these crazy things that the world was like, this is just crazy. This whole process isn't going to work. But what they were striving after was changing a culture of a team. They were trying to go from a mediocre or bottom barrel team to one of those perennial superstars. And they entered into this process that he, the general manager just encouraged everyone just to trust. You know, it seems like Detroit sports fans finally always find themselves in the rebuilding process, Right? We know what it's like to sit there and hope the next coach is going to come in and lead us to victory. We, we hope that we are able to have that winning culture. But you know, there are teams that are able to develop winning cultures. And they have a way of helping people rise to the top. You know those true teams that have those winning cultures like the Lombardi Packers or the Landry Cowboys or the Belichick Patriots? We, we know these teams and, and they, the way these coaches and managers, they're able to develop systems that if you buy into the process or you buy into the system, it means that you're willing to sacrifice special things for the betterment of the team. Right, to, to be a part of the winning program, it might mean that you get less playing time or you might get a reduced salary, but you're willing to do that for the success of the team. 
And those athletes that come to join these teams that are, that are willing to sacrifice, they find great success. But those that aren't willing to sacrifice, they find themselves playing someplace else. I say all this because this is kind of the way that I view the book of James. It's almost as though God is coming to us as our coach, as he's saying, now that you've come to place faith in Jesus Christ, you now are on a different team. You're no longer on the team of the world, but you're on team God. And as you're on team God, there is this process that God wants each one of us to walk through, and it's a process towards godliness. It's a process towards holiness. And so the book of James is great for us because it, unlays, it lays out before us what is God working at towards in our lives? What does holiness, what does godliness look like in our lives? And it's as though God is saying, trust the process. Things aren't going to make sense as you walk this walk towards me. Your life is going to look different than the way that the rest of the world looks, but trust the process. So today and over the next six weeks, we're going to be walking through um, this book together as we look into see what God is making us into. And the book of James, for me personally, has been one of those books that I've continually come back to over and over again in my own Christian walk. It's been times where it's deeply challenged me, but also it's been overwhelming encouragement. It's a beautiful picture into what Christ can do in my life and in your life when we trust the process. So as we get ready to dive in, let me give you a little bit of background about the book so that you can have a deeper appreciation for where we're at. We're not just like dive bombing into some part of scripture, but this is all part of God's unfolding plan, his revelation for us so that we may know him. We know that James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, whose name was James. And this carries a lot of weight because James was someone who trusted the process, but he didn't trust the process while Jesus was alive. We know that Jesus came from a big family. Matthew chapter 30, 13, verses 55 through 56, names Jesus' brother as James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and mentions sisters. So he at least had six siblings. And in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, we see that Jesus' brothers mocked him. It says in verse 5, it says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So here we go. We've got Jesus coming on the scene. We know that we celebrate him coming at, at Christmas time, who God to us to save us from our sins. We now see Jesus, and this part in, in John, is gone about caring about his ministry. He's healed many. He's, um, he's preached and he's spoken about the kingdom of God. He's done all of these amazing things, and yet his own family were skeptical. They didn't believe that he was the Son of God. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, the Christ that was to come. They were skeptic. And we can kind of understand that, right? Remember, just imagine you have an older sibling and that you've seen and watched grow up along with you and they claim to be the son of God. And you're like, really? You're the son? You're the son? I saw your diapers get changed. Like, how, how is it possible that you could be the son of God? And so they were skeptical. Even though Mary and Joseph both knew who Jesus was, the kids didn't. And it's not until 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, 
that where it specifically names James as one of the ones whom Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. It wasn't until after Jesus went to the cross, died, went to the grave, and then came back alive that James believed. James understood what Jesus had come to do, that Jesus had come to save the world from their sins, that on the cross, he bore the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. And when James saw the resurrected Jesus, that changed him forever. James, we know later on, becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. His faith in God, his faith in Jesus changed him from being a skeptic to being a believer. And now as we turn our attention to James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, I want you to see just how drastically changed James was. He says this, James, he's identifying himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You catch that? You catch the magnitude of that, James is, is saying it's, it's easy for people to say, James, a servant of God, right? I'm, it's easy to be a servant of God, to give your life over to God. But James was saying there's something special about Jesus, who is my half-brother. No longer does he see him just as his half-brother, but he sees him as Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Not only does he have the name, but he is the Lord. He is the, the Messiah. He is the one that God had spoken of. He is also the Savior. He is the Christ, and he is his Lord. James is willing to put himself under his brother because he sees him for who he really is. Now, this is the statement that each one of us must believe in our hearts in order to enter into a relationship with the God of the universe. We, the, our only hope for entering into a relationship with the God of the universe, if we come to Jesus and we accept him as Christ and Lord, not only Savior of our souls, but the Lord of our lives. And when we come to this, we enter into this beautiful relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, and we begin this amazing journey that James is going to unfold before us. And if you're here today and you've been skeptic, a skeptic of Jesus, maybe you, you believed in God your whole life, but you have looked at Jesus and you've considered Jesus, and you're like, why do I need Jesus? Well, today, listen to the testimony of James and believe in your heart that he is the Christ and that he is your Lord. So James has believed this remarkable truth. He's believed in the promises of God. And so now what we're going to, to do as we walk through this, this book we see that James, from this changed position, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, writes this book, not only to believers that were in the area at the time that were walking through seasons of persecution, but James is writing this to Christians today. The, the, the truths that are contained in this passage and in this book are just as relevant to our lives today as they were thousands of years ago. So what we're going to do over the next weeks together is we're going to see this book 
as what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, then you're going to see yourself in this book. It's almost as though the book of James says, if you are to live as a Christian, this is what your life will look like. So in many ways, the book of James is like a rubric that we place over our lives, where at times it should be encouraging, right? We should be encouraging to where we see that the work of God has changed us over the course of time so that we look less and less like our old selves and more and more like Jesus. But then it also should be deeply challenging because we see that if we are to surrender ourselves to the work of God in our lives, this is what will be produced. And so sometimes this will be deeply challenging. So each week, what we're going to do is look at a different aspect of the process that God is working us towards in our lives. And so today, what we're going to take a look at is how is it that suffering is a part of this amazing process? Now, we don't have time to fully unpack all of the levels of suffering and all that uh, is engaged in between it. But we're going to walk through what James has to say and, and take a account in our own lives so that we can, be, we can understand how is it that God uses suffering in our lives for our good and for his glory. And today what we're going to see is that mature faith survives seasons of suffering. Mature faith survives seasons of suffering. There are three essential truths that I want us to see as we walk through seasons of suffering today. The first I want us to see in this passage is that surviving suffering requires a right understanding of God's goal. Surviving suffering requires a right understanding of God's goal. If we, and and before we jump in, if we see God as an angry, judgmental God, that's going to impact how we feel as we walk through life. If we don't see God as a good God, then when suffering happens, we'll be be tempted to look at God's character in a different way. And So James is very, very quick to jump in. Let's look in verse 2 through verse 4. This is what James writes. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Skip on down to verse 12. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Immediately, as as James jumps right in, he's not, not holding back. He starts the letter like with a right hook. He's like, count it all joy. My brothers. And you would expect, as James is jumping in, like, count it all joy that heaven is coming. Count it all joy that seasons of peace are here. Count it all joy that security and safety are all yours in Christ. You would hope that that's where he'd go, right? But instead, he says, starts off in something that's counterintuitive, it's countercultural. He encourages us by saying, count it all joy. When you face trials of various kinds. When you face suffering, count it joy. I didn't get an amen on that one. Right? Count it joy when you face suffering. How many of you are suffering this morning? You don't have to raise your hand. But here's the truth about suffering. 
You're here this morning, you're either coming out of a season of suffering, you're deep in the middle of a season of suffering, or you're getting ready to go into a time of suffering. And if we don't have a proper perspective of suffering, it can get us all messed up. It can get us to question all kinds of God's character and all kinds of God's goodness. But we've got to understand how God uses suffering in our life. And the key is here, right here. So count it all joy whenever you face trials or temptation or trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith This is huge. The testing of your faith. What God wants to do is he wants to test your faith. He's just like a good teacher, right? As a good teacher, you also have book work, but then you also have the lab, right? You have book work where you come to the word of God and and you're told the truth and you are communicated the truth. You read the truth for yourself, but then you also have to experience it, right? You've got to make sure the rubber and the road meet together, right? And so what what James is telling us is in God's perfect plan for your life, he sets up seasons of suffering to test your faith. Because he wants you to trust him. And that's exactly what suffering does. God, do I trust you? God, do I really trust you? Do I really trust that you know what you're doing? Do I really trust that you are with me? Do I really trust you? And what James says, that's a part of the process. It begins in in trust and faith. And the more and more we suffer and the longer the suffering goes through, the more and more we trust. What that does is that trust begins to develop steadfastness. I love that word because it's almost, you can almost see it in your mind, right? A steadfastness is someone that is unmoved, Oh, the world is coming at them, but someone that's steadfast, it's almost as though they're like, I'm here. Or maybe you need a, more of a, a beautiful picture. You guys remember Weeble Wobbles? Weebles wobbles, but they don't fall down. Remember those toys? The weighted toys at the bottom. Like you push them, and they go down, and they come back up again. You push them, they go down, and they come. That, that's a picture of steadfastness, okay? We're weebles and we wobbles, but we don't fall down as Christians, The world comes at us, and yet we're steadfast because I trust you, God. I trust you. I may get knocked down, but I'm getting back up again because I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. What that produces in us is steadfastness. It's a beautiful thing. And then what that produces is we become, we grow in steadfastness. And when we've allowed steadfastness to have its full effect in us, then we are perfect and complete, not lacking anything. This is the process. God wants you to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And the way he gets you there is by moving you off center moving you outside of your own abilities, moving you outside of your own strengths, moving you outside of your own comfort zone so that he can step in and be God because that's who we need him to be. So consider it joy, count it all joy when these trials come of various kinds. And now what he's talking about here is is the struggles come in so many different ways and in so many different times. Right? They're various. They're not the same for everyone. 
right? Like you may be walking through a season of, of just being totally distraught because someone that you love in your family and in your life has just passed away. Like you're feeling that suffering, you're feeling that pain, you're feeling that sense of loss. Or maybe you're here and you didn't get that promotion. And so you're feeling that sense of suffering. Both parties in both of those experiences are both suffering at the same time of various kinds. Does it mean that the first is worse than the second? Absolutely not. The pain of the second might go away faster than the pain of the first. But in all of those things, God is working so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then he goes on with this promise in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Blessed is the man that allows the, the word, the things to come, but then comes back up as they're continuing to count it joy and continuing to persevere and trust in the Lord. For when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life. Now this, this crown of life that God has promised to those who love him doesn't, doesn't come as a royal crown. This crown is not a royal crown because of your royal identity. This is the crown that comes as one who has won the race. This is the victor's crown. This is the crown, the one that wherein God says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is that crown that he puts on your head because you trusted in the process. You continue to remain faithful during those times of suffering. And what's amazing for James is joy is not grounded in our external circumstances. Joy is found in God's eternal purpose. Let me me say that again because I don't want you to miss that. Joy is not grounded in our external circumstances, the things going on outside. Joy is found in God's eternal purpose. When suffering begins, when we walk through a season of suffering, it's a sure sign that God is at work. That God is doing something in your heart. God is doing something in your life. And instead of, of, of trying to avoid all kinds of suffering, which we do naturally, we embrace it because we trust the character of God and we trust the process that God is walking us through. Suffering, though it is painful and hard, it grows our faith. You know, I'll never forget watching my mom suffer through leukemia. Though there were good days and there were bad days. But what what overwhelmed me by watching my mom suffer and eventually die is that her faith remained. She never wavered in her trust of God, never wavered in her understanding of what God was up to, even though she didn't know all the reasons why her faith remained. And there always seemed to be a sense of joy because she knew that she was in the Father's hands and he was working all things out. I learned from her example that counting it all joy doesn't mean always having to have a smile on your face. And you don't have to give fake answers like, how are you doing? Everything's fine. Her joy was not always in a smile. For there were many tears, there was much pain, there was much 
physical suffering. But her joy came in a deep contentment that she knew that she wasn't suffering alone. Even though she had her family by her, her deepness came from knowing that God was with her when he walked through seasons of suffering, which is so amazing. This is the truth. You're never more closer to God than, or God's never more closer to you when you walk through seasons of suffering. He knows what suffering experience and it feels like as he watched his own son die. Through her suffering, God was refining my mother's faith. And the day that she passed, I know that she received the victor's crown. You know, watching my mom remain faithful through her suffering helped prepare me to trust in God and strengthen my faith as I walk through the suffering of her loss. Because of her faithful example, if God could get her through to the end, then I know God would be faithful to get me through to the end. And it's something I still claim to today. As life is difficult and life is hard, I know that God is gonna get me through to the end. And I know and am convinced that God will get you through to the end. You see, James is not saying that we should pretend that trials are easy to take on. That we should look, he's saying instead we should look beyond the difficulty towards the spiritual benefits. Through the process, God wants us to be mature. He wants us to not lack anything. He wants us to be complete. And there are parts of, if we knew like the depth of our sin, if we knew like the depth of our evil motives and our evil desires, if we knew the depth of those things, like it would overwhelm us. And I'm so thankful that God doesn't give us a clear picture all the time of all of that because we would be overwhelmed. But and yet God looks at who we are when we come into Christ. He says, you don't need anything to come to Christ. Just trust in him. Don't get yourself clean before you come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus and all your mess, all of your, all your mistakes, all of your shame, bring all that to Jesus. And then Jesus just says, trust me. I'm gonna take you through this process where one by one, we're gonna take a look at all those areas in your life. And he's gonna get victory over them if we will let him. So as we begin, let us... Take on a proper view of suffering. And I know you're like, I have so many questions about suffering. I know, I know. There's no way we can scratch or completely digest all of that right now. But trust in the simple fact that God is at work in your suffering. God is with you in the midst of, his, of your suffering. And he is working this out. He is testing your faith so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The second truth of the scripture today that I want us to see is surviving suffering requires a right understanding of our sinfulness. Look with me in verse 13. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, what 
James is doing here is he's helping us understand suffering and God's at work in sinfulness, right? First of all, he says, God is in the business of testing you. God is gonna test your faith, right? You get you from the classroom to the lab. You're gonna be in that process, but you've gotta understand that sometimes suffering comes in your life. It's because of your sin, right? We do stupid stuff, and sometimes we can't claim that it's God's fault that things go wrong in our lives, So he makes a distinction here, and I hope you can see it. Testing comes from God. Temptation does not. Did you catch that? Temptation does not come from God. Testing does, because testing helps produce perseverance and steadfastness and maturity and completion. Tempting if we give ourselves over temptation, takes us down this path that leads to death, not life. And where does all of this come from? It comes from ourselves. Let no one say, I'm being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, for he tempts no one. It's not God at work. But he says here, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Temptation begins inside of you. And here's where the temptation really begins. Where we look at the goodness of God and we're tempted to believe one of two lies. The first lie is what God has given me is not good. And the second, what God has given me is not good enough those are the two questions you're going to be tempted with in your life where you're going to look at all that God has laid out before you all that God has given you and you're going to say God what you've given me is not good and it's not enough I need more I need something different I need I need a new job I need a new this I need a new that And what happens is that each one of us in our hearts and in our lives are deeply passionate people. We want pleasure. We want pleasure, right? We want goodness and we want life and we want things to feel good and we want things to be easy. And so many times, especially as you go through seasons of suffering, you're like, this isn't good, this doesn't feel good. And so we wanna sometimes transition into finding something that is that quick fix to make us feel good. And as you walk through seasons of suffering, you'll be tempted to sin. You'll be tempted to say, God, I'm not trusting the process. I need a quick fix. So I'm gonna give myself over to this. I'm gonna give myself over to pornography. I'm gonna give myself over to loving money. I'm gonna give myself over to relationships. And I'm gonna go from one bad relationship to the next bad relationship to the next bad relationship and never actually rest in the goodness of God. When we are tempted, when we are lured, and we are enticed by our own desires, and when temptation turns to desire, and desire left unchecked gives birth to sin, and sin left unchecked leads to death. One of my favorite childhood books was Where the Red Fern Grows. You guys familiar with that book? It's a story of Billy Coleman who wants a pair of red bone coonhounds so that he can hunt for raccoons. 
And one of the ways he tries to raise money for these dogs is he does a bunch of odd things, but one of the things is he tries trapping. He wants to trap um, raccoons so that he can take their skins and make some money and eventually buy the dogs. Well, he tries trapping for a long time and is super unsuccessful. So he finally goes to his grandfather and he goes to his grandfather and he says, Grandfather, what's the secret to trapping? And his grandfather says this. He says, this is all you need to do. It's really a simple process. He says, go get a log, drill a hole in it. Hole about this big. And then what you need to do as you drill that hole is you need to put um, nails in the side of it that kind of come at an angle, okay? And then place something shiny at the bottom of that hole. Billy was like, Grandpa, that, that's not going to work. Like, how, how would that work? And this is what he said. This is his question. Uh, Billy sees the problem with the plan and asks why they won't just open their freaky little paws and drop the object. And this is what Grandpa said. The peculiar thing about raccoons is that once they grab onto something, they won't let go ever. You catch that? You place a shiny thing in the bottom of the hole, and when that raccoon sees that shiny thing, it's going to desire that shiny thing, and it's going to go in there, and it's going to grab that shiny thing, and it won't let go of the shiny thing. As it tries to pull its hand back out, those nails are going to stick into the hand of that closed fist hand of that raccoon, and you got that raccoon. You guys see the correlation here? <laughs> Thank you. Right, there are a ton of shiny things in the world that are around us. Things that are telling you that you'll be happy, you'll be at peace, you'll be satisfied, you'll be secured if you just have this. And I see so many believers living like raccoons where we want to take the scraps that are left over, things that kind of promise life and hope and all of that, and we want to grab hold of them, realizing, not realizing, that we're stuck in a trap and we can't get ourselves out because of our freaky little hands will not let go of the shiny little thing. And what ends up happening is we die. You can't say that God is tempting you. God's, God, God's not causing that process. That comes from us. We, we don't want the goodness that God has for us, but we want the things of this world, and we'll race after it. Far too many believers, and, far, and me myself, I've been guilty of this, far too long, we wait far too long in the process to deal with sin in our lives. It's, it's as though we feel like we got to walk around and hide ourselves from everyone else because we, we can't talk about sin. We, we can't talk about our struggles. We can't talk about the ways in, in which we are tempted. But we wait into the process and, until sin is given, until uh, all this desire and stuff has given birth to sin, and then our sin becomes the spectacle for the world. And then our dirty laundry's all out there and everyone's like, yep, should have saw that one coming. Right? The, the process of, of walking through this is to start a temptation. When we are tempted, that's when we need to invite others into the process. We're saying, hey guys, I'm tempted in this way. Have you sinned yet? No, you haven't. Have you done anything wrong by being tempted? Absolutely not. 
But if we got there and we went to, had a brother or sister in Christ that we, we trust and that we know, and we step out and say, you know what, I'm being tempted in this. And then come alongside and they can help us, encourage us, set some accountability and some boundaries upon it. Far too often we wait until that sin has given birth and we're stuck and we can't get out. And then that still needs a mighty work of the Lord. Third, surviving suffering requires a right understanding of God's character. Look at me, verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Suffering requires us to have a right understanding of God's character. God is not holding back from us good things. You don't have to exchange the shiny little things for the goodness of God. All we need to do is embrace the goodness of God because the good gifts come from God. Every good and perfect gift that you have in your life has come from your heavenly Father. And these gifts are given to you to show his goodness, but they're also given to you to enjoy. So many times we don't even enjoy the goodness and the good gifts that God gives us. But we need to see that God gives us good gifts. And he gives us good gifts out of his love. Verse 16, don't be deceived. Don't forget. Don't let your heart and your mind go different places. My beloved brothers. See, not only does James have deep affection for his Christian brothers, he's referring to the goodness of God that God has for all of his children. You are beloved by God. You are beloved by God, and he has good things for you. I love how it says that God is the father of light, which is describing the purity of his character he is light through and through. And in him there is no variation or shadow. There is no character flaw in God. And one of the greatest characteristics of God is that he does not change. He's always the same. You and I always change. Right? We're constantly like on, on shifty soil where one day our affections and our attention are over here and the next day our affection and our attentions are over here and the next day we're, we're like a crazy squirrel trying to run around the world, right? Chasing after this nut, chasing after that nut, chasing after that nut. We're all over the place. And so we're constantly changing, but God never changes. And God is the giver of good gifts. And we know this, the greatest gift that he ever gave us was Jesus Right, that Jesus came to live a perfect life that we couldn't and die the death that you and I deserve. And by doing that, through doing that, and when we place faith and trust in the work of Jesus, that brings us to, back to God and gives us peace with God. But today, the biggest lesson we can learn is that we need to trust the process. Trust the process. God is at work in your life if you are a father of his. 
If you're a child of God, God is at work in your life, so trust the process. Are you suffering? Then consider it joy. God is at work. Take it to heart. God has now got you ready for the next test. And if you don't pass this test, guess what? You go back to the word. You'll hear his truths again. And then God will give you another test. And another test. And another test. And another test until you learn it. Because God loves you. Are you suffering? Consider whether your suffering is coming from sin. Maybe you've given yourself over Instead of trusting in God, you've given yourself over to trusting things in this world. My encouragement to respond to that is just to confess. Are you suffering? Look for the good gifts of God. They're there. They're present. Even in the presence of suffering, God's goodness and his gifts are there. So many times we just want to have blinders that focus in on the suffering and not able to see the good gifts. So maybe you're here today and you're walking through suffering and you just need to ask God, God, open my eyes to see the good gifts so that it will strengthen me as I walk through this season of suffering. Church, I think it's so important that we have a deep understanding of suffering and how God uses it in our lives. It's not something to be avoided but it's something that we can walk through, not alone, but we have each other, but we also have the presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those here this morning that are in the midst of deep suffering. I pray today that your word has been a word of encouragement to them, that you'd help them to count it joy today, that you are working in them and through them to produce maturity. So Father, I pray today that you would lift their head. Help them to see your face. Help them to feel your presence. And I pray, God, when they cannot walk, that you would carry them. Father, for those today that are deeply stuck in sin, Father, I pray today you'd open their eyes to see the severity. The sin is not something that we play around with, that we mess with, because it kills us. But instead, Father, I pray that you'd lead us to repentance and lead us to confession. And Father, I pray you'd help open our eyes to see the good gifts that you've littered our lives with. Father, you have been a good father. Help us, God, to see so that we may praise you for all that you're doing in our lives and for all that you are going to do. So, Father, today, help us to grow in our faith and help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.